Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning. We are continuing in our series this morning through the book of Hebrews. Let me say welcome to all of you joining us online. And for those of you who might be new with us, we are honored and excited to have you worship and learn with us together through God's Word, through the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 10. We are in week 21 of this series as we are moving closer and closer to the end of our study in Hebrews, which will take us up to uh, Christmas time. We'll move out of uh, Hebrews. We'll finish up Hebrews and move right into celebrating Jesus coming at Christmas, and so we've got a few more uh, a few more weeks to go, but we are getting there. Praise God that He has uh, allowed us to go through this book together. I pray it has been just a blessing and um, just really an encouragement, but also a transforming time as we have been through chapters 1 through 9. And we begin chapter 10 today, and before we do that, if you have a Bible, go ahead and join me in chapter 10. And while you're doing that, uh, let me uh, just say we have no beach baptisms today. That's probably pretty evident uh, based off what took place this past week. Uh, we've rescheduled them for uh, the month of December, so more to come on that. And I just do want to pause and just say a prayer for all those in our area and the areas um, in Florida and surrounding areas that were just absolutely devastated through this storm. So if you would, let's, let's pause for a second and pray for them. God, we know that you need to be present in the hearts and the lives of those families who, for some, have lost everything, others who have lost some, many who are dealing with the effects and the devastation. God, it's your presence, only your presence, that can bring the comfort that they need. It's your wisdom and it's your your guidance to lead those in the recovery efforts and those in ministering and serving in those areas and helping those affected. God, speak through them your comfort, your peace, your presence into their lives. And God, we lift all of them up, knowing that you are the answer, you are the hope. God, bring the resources. Lead us as a church to know where we can help and be a part of helping those. May your spirit just hover and move in and out of the lives that are there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter 10, for those of us who have been with us sometime as we've journeyed through the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 is going to sound very familiar. Um, almost like a repeat or a summary of what we've been working through so far. For those that may be new with us this morning or joining us online, chapter 10 really is a great place to start because it's going to be helpful in giving this summarized view of Hebrews and kind of its theme. But what I want to do as we start chapter 10, I want to review just quickly uh, verses or chapters 1 through 9. And so uh, one writer, one uh, commentator broke it down like this. He says, in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is better than the prophets of the Old Testament. He's superior to the angels who fulfill God's bidding and do his will. 
In chapter 2, we see the salvation that he secures for us is superior to anything uh, that the Old Testament law of Moses could provide. Chapter 3, we're told how Jesus is better than Moses. Um, in chapter 4, we're told that the rest provided by Jesus is greater than the rest that came through Joshua and the promised land of Canaan. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, the writer of Hebrews explained in detail how Jesus as high priest is better than Aaron and all the other high priests in the history of Israel. In chapter 8, he explained that how the new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus is superior in every way to the old covenant of the Old Testament that came through Moses. And in our last chapter, chapter 9, we saw that the sacrifice that Jesus offered of himself to deal with sin once and for all is incomparably superior to the sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs that were offered during the time of the Old Testament. So our text today in chapter 10, these verses are something of a summation, really, of everything that I just kind of mentioned. And again, if you've been with us for a while, you may have noticed this, that Hebrews is highly repetitive. It's highly repetitive, different from the other books of the New Testament. Hebrews is this constant retelling of a single theme with just some slight variations to the way it's told. What's the theme? The theme is simply this, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. So we've entitled this entire series, Jesus is Greater, with a couple of subtitles throughout our time in this book. But what we've seen that and hopefully what you've understood and been able to experience as well is that Jesus is greater. Who he is, what he has done and accomplished, and what he is doing now at the, the right hand of the Father in heaven is infinitely superior, more glorious than everything that preceded him in the Old Testament. In fact, everything that preceded him pointed towards him, pointed towards his coming. The, the symbols, the various symbols, and the shadows, and the sacrifices from the Levitical code. The Old Testament was designed simply to point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and to his finished work. And so with that being said this morning, what I want to do with our 18 verses, chapter 10, 1 through 18, instead of us being here till tomorrow, I'd like to provide more of a summation of our text in the various parts as we break down our text in the three parts. And, and then I want to come back and I want to look at one place that I think is vital to the life of a Christian. So let's begin. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, our first part. Our writer says to us, For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers have, having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So again, our author is trying to make the point that if the sacrifice for sin that they had was perfect and could finally cleanse the heart of the guilt that it had. It would not need to be repeated. The failure of the Old Testament sacrifice to cleanse the human conscience of guilt and shame. So demonstrated in the fact that it was repeated. It was continued year after year. It was offered year after year. The only thing these sacrifices did well was to remind the people that their sins had not been forgiven. One writer summed it up simply like this. Repetition is inconsistent with finality. 
Repetition is inconsistent with finality. The Day of Atonement that came every year was not only a reminder to the people that their sins had not been fully removed, it's also a constant reminder that God still remembered their sins, which is a point I want you to hold on to as we get through our text. The law of Moses, as good as it was and as instructive as it was, if you look at verse 1 in chapter 10, has but a shadow of the good things to come. What are those good things? The good things is Jesus and all that he has accomplished for us in the establishment of the new covenant. Nothing in the Old Testament law could provide the spiritual realities that God wanted us to have and to experience and to know that the new covenant brings. I mean, ask, think about this question. Ask yourself this question. Why would we want to place ourselves under the authority of a shadow when God invites us into the experience of the substance? The early church scholars tell us that most converts to Christianity in the first century would have been members of some type of religion. It, it could have been Judaism or something else, but, but what they say is that it that all of them practiced some sort of animal or material sacrifice. All of them had some type of sacrificial system in it. So these people that would have been hearing this word from the author of Hebrews would have, you know, would have been very used to, by their religion, the ongoing sacrifices. And so what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, as he's been trying to say repeatedly, he's trying to say, listen, let me tell you something extraordinary. Let me tell you something unique about Christianity, about following Jesus Christ. We are a faith. We are a religion of one sacrifice that is never repeated once for all. Now that's tremendously important news, right? Because he's saying, look, to go back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which we know, as we've said over our time in Hebrews, that that was one of the concerns that this group of Christians were looking to maybe go back to what used to be, saying, listen, to go back to that Old Testament, to turn your back on the one sacrifice that matters. The ineffectiveness of the Old Testament ceremonial system is in bringing the, the cleansing of the conscience that we all desire is proof that it was looking forward to a once for all. We've heard that repeatedly. Once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ that actually, actually accomplished forgiveness of sin. Now, here's where it connects to us. All who have been Christians for a while have known what it's like to wrestle with the issue of knowing the forgiveness of God for our own past sins. I can't tell you how many times my own life and in the lives of those that I've interacted with struggle with forgiveness, God's forgiveness for the sins that we have committed. I mean, there are some sins that, that we've committed that, that hurt, touched us so deeply it's hard to let them go. And what we often try to do is we try to deal with those sins in our own attempt to atone for them. In some way, in some capacity, we try to make up for those sins. We try to do something, some type of sacrifice in some way. It may not be an animal sacrifice, but in some way we try to make our own atonement. But the reality is, is we're not capable of making atonement. We can't make atonement for our sins. There's only one who can make atonement for our sins. Remember, we're talking in the vertical relationship with God. 
Yes, we can seek forgiveness and offer apology to those that we have sinned against. But in the vertical relationship with God, there was one who can make true, real, lasting, once-for-all atonement. I can't do anything to make up for those sins. I can't erase them by any good action or any good deed that I do in the future or try to do in the future. I have to do what? I have to depend upon one sacrifice, entirely upon one sacrifice, offered once for all. How beautiful is that? I can only run to Christ. I can only flee to Jesus because He is the one who's provided the sacrifice. And I must trust upon that sacrifice He's provided. I must not only trust, I must depend upon it so I may be made right with God. It's radical. It's a radical idea because we all struggle with trying to make up for things that we've fallen short of. Which is logical too. When you fall short of something, you try to cover the next part of the distance, right? We try to make up. Let me make it right. But in our relationship with God, there was only one who could make it right. His name is Jesus. It's radical, but it's the very core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews is arguing that point right here. He's saying we don't have to, we don't have, to have repeated atonement. We have one. Once for all. Let's keep going, verses 5 through 10, the second part. Consequently, verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have, have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When we said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, in offerings, in burnt offerings, in sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Verse 9. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Verse 10. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, we've heard this phrase, once for all. Chapter 9, verse 12, once for all. For all, it's personal, right? And here we see the author of Hebrews quoting, as he's done repeatedly throughout our study, from the Old Testament, right? It is a study in the Old Testament as it's a study in the New Testament. That's the beauty of the book of Hebrews. And he quotes from Psalm 40. And if you look at Psalm 40, it's a declaration by David, by King David, that what God ultimately wants isn't the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, but rather the obedience from a willing heart. The obedience from a heart that's willing. In fact, you see that throughout the Old Testament. There are many besides King David who understood that, that God, God desired not, not to sacrifice He wanted the obedience that came from a heart that desired to do it. The sort of obedience was perfectly embodied and expressed in the life of Jesus. That's what he was saying in this particular part of our text. Especially when he offered himself up as the sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice that was perfect. It was adequate. It was full. It was the final atonement for sin. Which we'll pause in just a little while to remember that. As we take communion today. Israel had settled into a formal pattern of religion where they were faithfully offering sacrifice. They were really good at it. They were faithful to it. They were following 
the Levitical code, the law that God had given, him, but given them, but they were not giving the Lord their hearts. That's his point here. You were doing it just as something to do because this is what you were told to do. It was a, a box to check, but you're, the inside of your life, which is what Jesus focused on the most when he walked the earth, was our heart. They did it all the things that God said for them to do, but they did it without their heart in it. It can happen to us. We can go through the motions. We can go through the ritual. That's why when we take communion in just a minute, we're going to press in that this isn't a ritual. It's about our heart and the posture of our heart. So the prophets over and over said to Israel, because they understood it, he, listen, he doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your heart. But David goes a step further, right? He says, Lord, I know the only adequate expression of my devotion for you, my delighting in your will and my having the law written on my heart and just loving to do your will. But here's the truth about David. If you know anything about the life of David from the Old Testament, he was not perfect because none of us are except for Jesus. He couldn't live up to that, right? He couldn't live up to that. Only one person could live up to doing the will of God perfectly. And it wasn't David. It was Jesus. So, so when, when David was speaking this, he was really talking about Jesus, right? Jesus was the one who delighted to do the Lord's will. That's what we saw, right? Verses 7 and verses 9, he says, Behold, I've come to do your will. Verse 9, he says, Behold, I've come to do your will. Jesus delighted in doing the Lord's will. In fact, he did it. And not only did he do it, he did it perfectly, which we cannot do. So David's words cannot ultimately be fulfilled by David. Our words of delighting in doing his will cannot ultimately be fulfilled in us and by us, by ourselves. Have to look forward to David's son. Who's David's son? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ through the lineage of David. So David's words, as the author of Hebrews is trying to show us, is that David knew that the ceremonial law that, that, was, that they had was not an adequate expression of love for God. It wasn't an adequate expression of fellowship with him or devotion that someone was going to have to come and do the Lord's will in order for us to truly have fellowship with God forever. And that someone is Jesus Christ, who's our great high priest. Let's keep going, verses 11 through 18. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Verse 17, and then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Verses 11 through 13, the focus is on the proof that the sacrifice of Jesus made is perfect there was absolutely no flaw in it. And what is the proof? What is the evidence? It's found in the fact that Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice for sin. And then what did he do? 
he sat down. He sat down. You notice what the high priest have to do. There's the compare and contrast here, right? The, the high priest, they never sat down. They stood. They always stood. And they continued to stand because it was repeated. It was continual. But Jesus, once for all, sacrificed after it was completed, after it was done, after he came out of the grave, after he ascended to the Father's right hand, he sat down. He sat down. It's perfect. So to prove the perfection of Christ's death as a sacrifice of sin, he sat down. That's what the Hebrew author was trying to really point out. Verses 14 through 18, he quotes for us once again the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, which he has done repeatedly throughout, which is about the establishment of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. And when you look at verse 14, let me read it again. He says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is for the Christian. This is for the disciple. This is for the one following after Christ. And he says that Christ has perfected you for all time. Don't don't move by that too fast. Don't, Don't skip over that too fast. Don't overlook the past tense of that. Something has happened to you The Christian, through faith in Jesus, that is foundational to your Christian identity in life. It is transformative. It is is forever changing of who we are and who we know we are. Our identity in Christ. You have been perfected. It is accomplished. It is finished. It is complete. Nothing can add to or distract from it. It's powerful. It's powerful to know who you are in Christ. It's powerful to know that it's done. And it's not done because of anything we've done. It's done because of all that Jesus has done. Now that doesn't mean that you'll never sin again or make a mistake. Rather, the perfection that he has in view is the forgiveness of sins. We are perfect In the sense that God has forgiven all of our sins and declared us righteous in His sight and thus qualified us, qualified you for acceptance in His presence. And that, listen, will never change. That is foundational to the faith of Christianity. That is foundational. To get that wrong or to misunderstand that is to create a a, a crack in the foundation. Is to be standing not on solid ground or a solid rock, but shaky ground. So how do we know that the perfection here is not sinless perfection? As if to suggest that when we believe in Jesus, we stop sinning. As some believe that that happens, we know it because of the rest of the verse. It says that those who are perfected are being sanctified. Notice the two tenses, the change in the tense, right? We have been perfected, that's where? It's in the past. It is accomplished, it's done, it's complete, but we are being what? Sanctified in the present. If we are still in need of daily sanctification, we obviously are not yet free from sin. This is the the foundational 
doctrines of Christianity, justification, sanctification. We are justified in the finished work and in our belief and our repentance. We have that justification imputed into us, brought to us, Christ's righteousness in the finished, perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice that is done, not a repeated sacrifice. All of that is brought to us, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything He's done. And then the process of sanctification, changing us, transforming us day by day into the image of Christ until we're home. Foundational seen right here in verse 14. And as we come to the end of our text, the end of our time before we move into communion, let me focus on that place that I think we need to focus. Verse 17. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now it's important to remember that God does in fact remember many things. Often in the Old Testament, We are reminded, we are assured that God remembers his people, that God remembers the promises that he has given, especially the covenant that he has made. You and I certainly remember our sins more often than we would like to admit. They harass our hearts, they they haunt our souls. There is a constant piercing of the conscience, right? And the only way to break free from that remembrance is to remind ourselves that God does not remember. Here's something about God to know. God doesn't gain knowledge, nor does God lose knowledge. He doesn't gain or lose knowledge. He neither learns nor does he forget He knows all things instantly and eternally, now and forever. Isaiah 55 reminds us that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. He's so much greater. And we do well to remember that so that we don't shrink God down into our experience of what we experience with one another. Again, He is so much better. So when the author says he won't remember our sins, he means I'll never bring it up and use it against you. Let that sink in. I'll never take your sins into consideration when it comes to determining who is granted entrance into my eternal kingdom. I'll never appeal to your sins on grounds of condemning you. Praise God. That's not what we experience here, I mean, horizontally with others, right? We don't experience that. But this is God. This is our God. This is our loving God. There's a difference between forgetting and choosing not to remember. Forgetting is unavoidable, right? It happens by nature, not by choice. You can't choose to forget. It just happens. It doesn't require any effort to forget something. You get busy. You get distracted. You get tired and things slip from your mind. This is not what happens to God. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get busy. Things don't slip from God's mind. God cannot forget in the literal sense of the term, and certainly not in the same way you and I forget. How many people forgot something this morning? Did you mean to forget it? Or you're like, oh, 
forgot. That doesn't happen to God. God doesn't suffer from the mental lapses. His mind is infinitely perfect and powerful. So when we read this verse, it's saying to us, God willingly chooses not to remember. It isn't so much that the knowledge of our sins and lawless deeds has been erased from his mind. Rather, God promises to us, promises to us that he will not remember our sin. He will not remember our failures. He will not remind us of them. Let that sit in your heart. Those sins play no part in determining or shaping our relationship with Him. He will never throw them in our face or bring up the ways that we have failed. Now, the devil might. Your flesh might. The world might. But God will not. In our faith in Jesus, in our relationship with Christ, in His righteousness and perfect sacrifice, His once for all, God will not remember. And you ask, well, what about the Holy Spirit? What about His role to convict us of sin, call us to confession, repentance? He certainly does that. And well, doesn't that conflict here? It doesn't if you understand the distinction between our eternal union with Jesus and our experiential communion with Jesus. Two important parts. See, our eternal union has to do with our salvation and our status in the sight of God. We are united by faith to Christ, and nothing can change or undermine that reality. This is what he meant in verse 14, having been perfected for all time. That's why we wanted to make sure we had that foundation. And God's promise to us that in that eternal union with Christ will never be threatened because we have a bad day. And because we have a bad day, it turn, it, which in turn causes God to have a bad day. And when he has a bad day, it, it, it turns him to remember our sins. That will never happen. That will never happen. Do you know how freeing that is? You know how loving, how kind, how graceful that is. But our experiential communion with Christ... It's something that can change from day to day. Our enjoyment of the eternal union and the peace that it brings as it flows into our hearts and from our hearts can fluctuate depend, depending upon our obedience. I am always and forever united to Christ by faith, but I don't always feel it. I don't always enjoy it or experience it from day to day. Why? Because disobedience and sin can greatly affect my communion with Christ, but never my union with Him. Very important to know. See, our fear is that when we fail and sin, God will say, Aha! Gotcha. I remember now when you did this before. I remember when I gave you the pass because of it. I gave you another chance, and there you go again. You're such a disappointment. God will never, ever respond to us like that. Look at us like that. See us like that. He will never do that. That's our God. Let me ask you a question as we wrap up. What would your Christian, let me talk to the Christian. 
What would your Christian life look like if you started each day, as God woke you up, and you went about your, your day, your task or responsibilities, and at each night you fell asleep with this confidence, this trust in your heart that God will never remember your sins. How transforming is that for your life? To know without hesitation, without the slightest doubt, that when God looks at you and when God thinks about you and hears your prayers, that He refuses to remember your sins. And it's not because there aren't any, not because we've been especially good that day or that week or we've had a great month, solely because Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice in our place for all time. To know this, to experience the joy from this, the power, the peace, it's too amazing for words. And that was at the heart, the author of Hebrews, in the letter, as he tried to continually, repeatedly point to the beautiful majestic, glorious work and person of Jesus Christ. His once for all sacrifice. Which is why we pause today to remember it. So if you have your communion cup, go ahead and pull that out. As you pull that out, go ahead and open up that top piece. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we never want this moment at the first of every month when we take communion together, we never ever want this moment for you to feel or to have this moment where it's just something that you do. We're like, oh, well, this is part of the Christian life. This is part of being a Christian. So we just do this. We do this. I'm not sure that it has much impact or meaning in my life, or maybe at one time it did, now today it doesn't. You just got into a rut with it. You've just got into, ah, this is what we do. I'm going to do it, and I won't, I won't feel or have the emotion around it. I, w- I won't sit in the peace or the, or the power that it is to bring and remind me of. I'm just going to do it. God, help us. But that isn't our heart. That is not why we do this, to just say we did it. If that was the case, we would have ended it a long time ago. This moment for Christians who are united by the, the body and the blood and the finished work of Jesus and who one day will be united with him forever, this is to... It's to comfort the hurting. This is to bring presence to the isolated. This is to remind us how much we are loved and how much we are looked at with grace, compassion, And it's not a one-time 
It's forever. Even though Jesus' sacrifice was some 2,000 years ago, its power is for today. And so this wafer is to represent the body that he freely gave, the body that he allowed to be beaten and broken and struck and spit upon. This is the symbol of what he was willing to do and go and give for, for me, for you. And if that doesn't cause you to, to just stop right in the moment, fall into a posture on your face and be grateful and thankful, there's nothing else that will. It's the greatest act of love the world has ever known. And I hope and pray that you know that love. Let's take this together. You want to go ahead and open up the bottom. And as you open that, you see the red-colored juice, a symbol of the pure, precious blood, a symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we've been talking about over and over and over through the book of Hebrews. Why? Because we're not supposed to get over it. You and I as Christians are not supposed to get over that sacrifice. It's, it's not supposed to be a one and done thing. The gospel is not something that you just have in a moment in your life, a collision that happens with you and Jesus that happens and then, then you just move about your day and your life. No, this is to be something that always is at work in our lives day to day, moment by moment as we remember the pure, precious blood of our King and our Savior that He so freely and willingly poured out. And again, this is not to be something that's just routine. It's to be something that moves, something that strengthens, something that stirs, something that causes us maybe for some to dig back into his word because we've drifted, some that might cause us to go seek forgiveness with others that we have hurt, some that because we see the forgiveness that he's brought to us, some that may cause us to be strong in this moment of weakness, some that might just need to know that we're not alone, we're not by ourselves, that we are with him and he is with us. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And so as we take this together, we are reminded that that promise that one day all that no trust believe will be together where there is no pain there are no tears goodness and grace forever and ever in a place called heaven let's take this together father thank you in your infinite wisdom and inspiring the writers to give us the pause that we need on a regular basis to truly 
Focus our hearts, focus our eyes, focus our mind on the sacrifice, the willingness, the perfection, the finished work of our Savior and our King, Jesus. May our praise, may our song be a blessing, a sweet aroma into the heavens as we sing and praise Him, the only one worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.